the Brady Bunch is a great thing. I'm glad it's made so many people so happy. I cannot get to work until I work the crossword puzzle. My mother said, never be a dishcloth, always be a tablecloth. <laughs> I'm grateful to those English AP courses where my books increasingly appear. Short takes for a short month. Today on Now I Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. February is, of course, our shortest month, and it reminded me that some of my interviews have been shorter than usual. Now, if you've listened to many of my interviews, you know that they usually run about 15 minutes, give or take a couple minutes. But occasionally, I've only got a couple of minutes with somebody. Usually, it's a celebrity on a very tight schedule. I'm catching them on the run, maybe at a bookstore signing, something like that, and I don't have a full 15 minutes. I've got two minutes or four minutes or five minutes at most. So, I've gathered up several of those today, for now I've heard everything. And you'll hear in the next few minutes, not just one, but two world-class American literary figures, a Grammy award-winning singer, an Oscar-winning actress, and the star of one of the most popular situation comedies of all time. So let's get started. First up, Patti LaBelle, founder of the group that bears her name. Patti LaBelle was born in 1944. She's accumulated a lot of wisdom over the years, which she put into a book about 20 years ago called Patty's Pearls. So here now from 2001, Patty LaBelle. I uh, have so many people coming up to me at the airports or after a show or something and saying, Patty, could you uh, give me some advice on this or on that or something? And, and I'll say to them, honey, I'm not the one. I don't really have enough advice for myself. I say, could you help me? But then some things I could give them advice on. So I started thinking about all the... Uh, anecdotes and all the things that I've learned in my life from my mother, my grandmother, and friends who have passed on and friends who have are still living and are still giving me advice. So I said it's I, time for me to write down some of this advice for some people who are seeking advice on certain situations. They're just little, you know, little readings of little things like my grandmother's um, certain things she was saying. My mother, I love this one that my mother said that um, never be a dishcloth, always be a tablecloth. <laughs> Um, or a dish rag or anything like that. Don't ever lower yourself to let a man make you feel less than a woman. And always respect yourself. And my mother got my father for the third time, caught him cheating, and he came in line, and I think she beat him up and then put him out. So I'm not saying that you women should beat the man up, but put him out. <laughs> and never, ever, you know, stoop to being the dish rag. Always be the tablecloth. Well, when I was reading your book, it almost felt like any time in your life you've needed a pearl of wisdom, God has sent you somebody to give you one. That's true. I, I've, I've been blessed that way. Um, and that there's one saying in the book, too, that uh, no God, no peace. And I do have God. And God has always been sending me uh, the right people, seems like. Um, and some that weren't right. But it was a good experience because I knew the next time what right was and what wrong was. And, you know, I was more forewarned. Well, you were honest enough to tell us in the book that you were always sent the right people. They were always saying the right thing. But you're human. You weren't always in a mind to listen to the right thing at that time. No, I wasn't. I, um, You know how I just thought I knew everything. Um, and there was a time in my life where I never, ever wanted to change, thinking that I would always be married to the same person, afraid of, of like, exits. Uh, but every exit is an entrance to something else. And I was always afraid of closing doors because I never knew if a, another door would open. But I took a chance after being married for 32 years and followed my heart and said, it's time for me to uh, to take a chance and make an exit. 
and it's been wonderful. I mean, it's not that I'm married again or anything like that, but I'm I'm single. My mind feels better. I I feel better as a woman. We're not angry at each other. We speak, you know, a lot. And um, I think, you know, we should always take chances. That's that's what I say. I was the one who would never do it. And after 32 years, I did it, and I'm grooving. <laughs> there was one story in your book that I really wanted you, that, that moved me so deeply, that I was wondering if you would tell the story about the butterfly and the coincidence. My sisters, all three sisters, I'm sorry, died of cancer, and... I was um, at my Jackie, my sister Jackie's funeral, and I hadn't, I hadn't been as good as I should have to her as far as visiting her when she was going through her chemo, saying, I can do it tomorrow, I can do it tomorrow. One day tomorrow never came, and I got there too late. And I just said, God, I feel so awful. And at the funeral service, uh, a butterfly landed on my shoulder and the church and of all people it landed on my shoulder and I said that's my sister forgiving me um, because she knew I love butterflies when I was a kid that's what I played with all the time so it was her way of letting me know it's okay the butterfly I swear to you that's what it felt like to me that she was on my shoulder at her funeral saying it's okay you know it's going to be all right I see butterflies all the time and I catch them and I keep them you know with uh put them in things with holes so they can live I love butterflies. Now, have you resigned as general manager of the universe? No, I haven't resigned. I'm still general manager. Everybody's problem is my problem. You know, and I, I think I can solve everybody's problem. That's who I think I am. But I'm really not. You know, but I'll take on your I'll take on your sorrow or your pity or your whatever and I'll try and help you out. That's just the way I am. But I have to solve my own. Next up, one of those, well, I'll call it a drive-by interview. It was at the National Book Festival in Washington, D.C. in the fall of 2009. I only had a couple of minutes, but I had to get John Irving, author of books like The Cider House Rules, A Prayer for Owen Meany, The World According to Garp. John Irving's books are required reading in many literary classes in high school and college. So here now from 2009, a couple of minutes with John Irving. Being at the National Book Festival, of course, a great honor. What responsibility comes with being asked to the National Book Festival? Well, uh, I think the, the, the writer's principal responsibility is to be excited to see readers of all ages. And uh, I was just saying that to a friend, that um, the most exhilarating thing about book signings, which are no special fun for me, um, or um, uh, meeting people who are readers in any capacity is to see the range of ages that they represent. Uh, I think the day I go out to uh, an author's festival, a book festival of any kind, and um, all the readers are my age, is the day I go home and don't go out again. You know, but there's a lot of young readers around. I was going to say, it has occurred to me that 20 years from now, standing in this spot, I might be interviewing somebody who was inspired today by you. Well, I, you know, one of the pleasures of getting older is that I have met a number of young writers who say that they became writers because of something they read of mine. I never had the opportunity to say that to Dickens, <laughs> you know, but if I'd met him, I would have said, yeah, I became a writer because I read Great Expectations. I remember uh, being uh, at that age and not liking every book I was required to read. And so I hate to think that, that, uh, I'm, uh, that reading me is, is being required of some kid who's really suffering uh, to get through it. But there's no question that 
you benefit as a writer by having all those young readers um, meet you at, at high school age. And so I'm grateful to those uh, English AP courses where my uh, books increasingly appear uh, because they have, uh, you know, they have, they have put me in touch with a, a lot of young readers. I just feel badly for that kid in the class who's <laughs> not a novel reader and he doesn't want to read anything, you know. I feel badly for them. Another literary giant that I happened to meet. Now, this is a, this is a great story. In the spring of 1997, I had scheduled an interview with the photographer Jill Kremitz, very noted, very famous photographer, portrait photographer. Her books have been bestsellers for many, many years. So on the day of the interview, she showed up. I walked out to the lobby from my studio to greet her, and there was a guy sitting next to her, and I realized he looked, kind of looks familiar. And then it dawned on me who Jill Kremens is married to. The guy sitting next to her was Kurt Vonnegut. Kurt, the Kurt Vonnegut. Slaughterhouse-Five, Kurt Vonnegut. Now, I didn't want to be rude to Jill Kremens because it was her interview. I didn't want to be rude to her and say, he's the one I really want to interview. But I was trying to think of a tactful way to get him into the studio with us so I can, might be able to ask him a couple questions. And then she did the work for me. She turned to him and said, Honey, why don't you come on back with us? And I'm thinking, yes! <laughs> so, so they came back to the studio. I interviewed Jill Kremitz for her book, but then I turned the microphone. I said, Mr. Vonnegut, may I ask you a couple of questions? And he said yes. Now, keep in mind, the book that Jill Kremitz was there to promote was a book of photographs of famous writers at their desks. Uh, many of them had never been photographed in their private lair before, including Kurt Vonnegut, her husband. So here now from 1997, Kurt Vonnegut. Well, I'm just here as Jill's fan, as I didn't expect to perform. <laughs> well, how do you feel? Do you feel in any way when someone photographs your, your workspace, your area? Is this, is this in any way uh, seeing something that, that we may, may, may not... That, that may, did you not want us to see this? Well, it, it is a new art form, as photographers haven't done this previously. So, uh... uh no, it hasn't been customary up to now, and perhaps it will be now, is uh, in order to hold our marriage uh, <laughs> together, I complain as little as possible, you know, no matter what's happening. And so she wanted to photograph me in my pajamas, as I am in this book here, working in New York Times crossword puzzle is... Uh, uh, who am I to complain? <laughs> is that your normal routine? The crossword puzzle is, yes, and uh, not necessarily the pajama part, but it is a ritual, and I do. I cannot get to work until I've worked the crossword puzzle, and uh, I'm very good at it. Incidentally, you might tell your audience that I'm one of the best. <laughs> I Undoubtedly in ink, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I, I gather that there are so many writers who have the little ritual, the thing that must be done before you can begin to write. Well, Jill knows more about it than I do. I only know about my own. Have you always had a ritual? Yes, I think I've done the crossword puzzle for a long time. And uh, uh, does it does it does it engage you the way it has engaged apparently many of these other writers and it has engaged me to see the venues in which others do their work? Yeah, and, and you said it, it, in a sense it's period because you know <laughs> it's peeking in a window as you are a peeping tom. Except what they're doing isn't disgraceful. It's it's quite interesting, but uh, one thing writers I know are ashamed of, 
uh, is talking to themselves. You know, is, is that the sign that, that something <laughs> is wrong with you? We have a 14-year-old daughter who, who is, will come into where I'm working and saying, Daddy, you're talking to yourself again. And for her sake, I stop it. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, another one of those interviews that just kind of landed in my lap. Uh, there was one day in the fall of 2008 that I found out by accident that Kathleen Turner, the actress famous for her roles in Romancing the Stone and Body Heat and Pritzi's Honor, that she was in town and was going to do a quick book signing. Well, I didn't have an interview scheduled with her. I'd cross my fingers that maybe she'd give me a couple minutes if I just showed up. And sure enough, I introduced myself after all the people there had gotten their books signed and went up to her and introduced myself Asked if I could get a couple minutes, and very graciously, very thoughtfully, she said, yes, of course. Now, and the thing that I wish I had on tape, but I didn't start my recorder in time, when I introduced myself, I said, Ms. Turner, my name is Bill Thompson. And in that voice that only she could do, she says, hello, Bill Thompson. Oh, man, I wish I had that on tape. Anyway, here from 2008, Kathleen Turner. Why did you write this book? Well, I'll tell you, at first, I, I wasn't going to. I mean, I, I was very reluctant to, honestly. But Gloria Felt, uh, who wrote, you know, who organized it for me, I, I've always thought she had the much more difficult job because she has, I think she said, 35 hours of me on tape. And, you know, we did a sort of rough cut together where we took out stuff that just didn't really need to be there. And then she um, organized it. You know, and put it, and my brain doesn't work that way. So I was very thankful. And Gloria and I became great friends when she was the president of Planned Parenthood. And I worked so much with them that we'd worked together a lot. So she came to me and uh, wanted me to, to do this. And it, it took some convincing. I thought it was pretty egotistical and, you know, kind of self aggrandizing you know. Anyway. But I was at a place, you know, where I. I, I was doing Martha, and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which had been a 30-year dream of mine. So I felt like I was in a place I could look backwards, but also look forward. You know, knowing now, you know, that I teach, that I direct, uh, that I'll continue, you know, my acting work. And there's just, there's just so much ahead. Also, I felt like I wanted to... To also um, pass on, you know, the importance of service that I believe deeply in, and also be, I don't know, maybe a touch inspirational or supportive in any case, for women my age in their 50s uh, who are going back to work, starting new careers, pursuing dreams that they had to leave, you know, earlier in their life. Uh, it's just fantastic, the creativity in women my age now. And I wanted to support that. So where's the title come from? Ah, no, that's literal, actually. Um, in the dressing room, you know, the first uh, opening night or, you know, the first few weeks, you get tons and tons of bouquets and flowers. And, and it's wonderful. It almost looks like a funeral parlor, you know. But then a couple of weeks into the run, they all die or wither. And I like roses in my dressing room so i have a standing order to send myself two dozen roses a week for my dressing room why shouldn't life be like that absolutely <laughs> so now do you enjoy being on on a book tour and, and getting out and meeting people well i always love meeting people I, I love people you know i mean i'd be a strange actor if i didn't i guess but you'd be surprised 
Yeah, I know. I always find that disappointing. But anyway, um, yeah, I did. This isn't really a book tour. I was in D.C. Uh, for the board meeting of People for the American Way that I work with. I'm on the board there. And I thought, well, as long as I was here, I'd come down here and, and uh, sell some books. And finally, rounding out our short takes today, anybody who's been watching television anytime since the 1970s knows this next actress. She's Marsha, 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 Brady Bunch's Maureen McCormick, who wrote a memoir in 2009, and I arranged a very quick drive-by interview with her at the Baltimore Book Festival that fall. So here now, from 2009, Marsha, 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 Maureen McCormick. What took you so long to write this? Huh. Well, I had been asked for years to write a book, but I just didn't feel ready. Um, and I think when you do a book, especially a memoir, you have to be at a place um, where you're healthy and you kind of have figured out a lot of things and, you know, that you're just prepared to go through the whole process again because you relive everything. So um, I felt very ready to, to do it at this point. You do but have... I didn't before. Yeah, well, you also have to, I guess, reach a point where the public, the people who only know Marsha Brady, are ready to hear, all right, there's a, there's another story here too. Exactly. And it's it's not always an easy story for you to tell or for us to read, but I guess it needs to be told. Right. Well, I think everybody has a story. I, I'm that's why I'm so fascinated with people and life, just because everyone's got a story to tell. I think everyone should write a biography, and I think we all should read them all, and we'd all learn a lot. But the big difference is. 99% of us don't have our entire lives defined in other people's eyes by five years' worth of being somebody else. Right, but that's okay. I mean, everyone's got their story. Everyone's an interesting person. Everyone's got something to offer. You know, everyone has something that we can learn from. So, <laughs> Well, the people who love the Brady Bunch will love all the behind-the-scenes stories. Exactly. The people, the people who love the stories of redemption and, you know, deeply troubled um, childhoods or, or adulthoods, will appreciate that story as well. Right, exactly. So you said, were there times in the writing of this book when you kind of threw up your hands and said, I can't do this? Um, no, because I had made a commitment, you know. And once I start something, I am the type of person that has to finish it. But there were times, you know, where going back over certain memories were uncomfortable and, and a little strange, but... Um, all in all, it was a great cathartic experience. Well, sometimes facing the tough parts makes you closer to those around you. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I think it's the tough times in life that get us through and make us better people. I don't think we really become better people by the good times. I think it's through the hard times and how we operate and what, what we do with that and where we go with it. And, you, unfortunately, apparently had to spend a number of years competing, in effect, with Marsha Brady. <laughs> That's funny. I've never heard it put that way. Um, competing with her. Um, well, I finally made peace with her, which is wonderful. Um, you know, she's she really is a part of me. So um, the two of us are kind of one and the same. Well, and as you say in the book, sometimes that's for the better, sometimes that's for the worse. Right, with everything. The good, the bad, the ugly, yeah. 
When you see reruns, do you think, wow, that's a whole different person? Oh, I don't really watch reruns. <laughs> no. You're the only person on the planet who doesn't. I know. I think I am. I think I am. Yeah, I don't. You know, over the years I've spent, I've interviewed a number of other 60s TV personalities, Gilligan and, uh, you know, Mr. Spock and Jed Clampett, and they've all had to deal in their own way with the stereotyping that comes from their role. Right. Have you been able to deal with that? Have I been able to deal with it? Stereotyping. Absolutely. I celebrate it. I love it. You know, I think the Brady Bunch is a great thing. I'm glad it's made so many people so happy. It's wonderful to have been a part of that. Um, it's great. I see it as my glass is definitely half full. Can I guess that at places like this that you run into a lot of men my age who say, I had such a crush on you. Yes, yes. All right, I just yes. confess to you now, I had such a crush on you. <laughs> oh, you did? And I had a closet full of clothes that would have made Greg, Bobby, and Peter so happy. All that polyester. Oh, wow. Now you can find easy Amazon links to books by all the people we've talked to today at our website, heardeverything.com. Have you subscribed yet to Now I've Heard Everything? We post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. In fact, if there's a platform that you like to use and you can't find Now I've Heard Everything on there, let me know. My address is bill at heardeverything.com. Thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, a man who can see the future, futurist and inventor Raymond Kurzweil. If you define any particular level of intelligent capability, computers will eventually reach that level. We're not on the threshold yet of computers really successfully imitating human intelligence, but I think we will get there in probably 30 to 50 years. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Bill Thompson.